1: Hey everybody, welcome to Smart People Podcast. I'm Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. Hope everybody's doing great out there, getting ready for Thanksgiving and to pound some turkey and me specifically mashed potatoes. Mm, Mashed potatoes and gravy. Yeah, or maybe John's just going to go to Popeye's. I like think it's normal. Popeyes for what? I don't know. I just want to, I like Popeyes and biscuits and gravy. We got a real treat for you today. As a matter of fact, this episode was so awesome for the first time in history. No, we we had this happen once before, but we're gonna split it up into two episodes because we ended up speaking to our guest for so long because he ended up being such a great guy. And I wasn't actually sure where, where this was gonna go because he deals with incorporating Western medicine with Eastern medicine. And we've had some guests on in the past where they deal with, you know, some of those Eastern medicine type things. And, and it, it got kind of weird. It got kind of weird. But this dude is awesome, knows his stuff. Man, it's really good stuff. So uh, this week we talked to Dr. Stephen Cowan. He is a board certified pediatrician with 25 years of clinical experience working with children. His subspecialty is in developmental pediatrics, and he really he looks at the whole picture when it comes to children with learning disabilities or with uh, mental handicaps and how to kind of combat that using both Western and Eastern medicine. So we're going to get into that here in a minute, but first, a message from John Rojas.
0: Guys, help out the show during this holiday season. Head over to our website, smartpeoplepodcast.com. Click the Amazon banner at the top of the page. It honestly is the easiest way for you to support the show. It's super simple. You just click the banner. It sends you to Amazon. You buy the awesome presents and gifts that you're getting for your family, friends, loved ones, whoever it may be, and we get a nice little kickback that, you know, helps out the show.
1: Yeah, I mean, December is usually our best month, and it helps us out. So just go on over there and make all the shopping easier on everyone. So we're going to turn it over to Dr. Cowan here in a minute. I want to give you guys a little bit more on him. He is a longstanding member of the American Board of Pediatrics, a fellow in the American Academy of Pediatrics, and serves on the AAP Committee of Developmental Disabilities. He's an instructor at New York Medical College, He's lectured at a bunch of other really prestigious places. He's worked at some really prestigious hospitals as well. And then incorporating the Eastern medicine. So he studied with Ephraim Korngold, OMD, and Stephen Ong, MD. So we'll go ahead and turn it over now to the first episode of our interview with Dr. Stephen Cowan. What do you find is kind of the most, I don't know if I want to say most common thing that you get asked, but what do you find most useful to the general audience? I want to make sure we touch on that.
2: Hmm, That's a big question. I I know. (laughs) The the way you got to me was through that 11 things blog. And I wrote that because of that question. Okay. Um, Because it was at a moment when I was uh, shifting into a more consulting Uh, role as a as a doctor you know I ran a busy pediatric practice for 25 years and I do my developmental practice I have done that for many years Um, so it's a big question I don't know what the most prevalent question is I think there I can think of a lot of hot subjects sure um, but uh, you know everything from education to immunization to sleep And infections and allergies and autism and ADD. You know, the list is very long. Sure. I think ultimately what comes down to is who do you trust? Because it's too much information. Too many blogs, too many podcasts, too many many experts, you know. And my whole thing is to try to get parents to be the
1: expert. I love that. We'll dive into that. And to
2: trust their intuition, which is a, a kind of spiritual practice. In other words, getting to the point where you can trust intuition without being blind faith, because blind faith is dangerous. Trust of intuition is something that I think humans for millions of years have had. We just don't use it that much anymore.
1: That's a great point that kind of just caught me off guard because I, we've, we've talked to people on the show before who – I mean we've talked to all types of experts and really great stuff. But sometimes you know we'll talk to two neuroscientists, top of the line, all this. We might hear different things, and I just go, oh, God, now I'm screwed. Now That's who do I right. trust? <laughs> That's right.
2: And that happens a lot to parents, particularly new parents who have a baby mm-hmm. or parents in a crisis. Or parents of a kid in a hospital, or you know, there's so many situations where I feel that without this practice, which I start from the moment a baby's born trying to teach parents what that actually means, it's not just la da language. I'm, I mean it as a true exercise. I do it with kids too, teaching them how to get in touch with what feels right. There is a physical Feeling when something is right. You know, you feel this is the right decision to make. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and it's tricky because in medicine, as a doctor, I was trained to sort, kind of shut that down a little until I started hanging out with these master doctors that became my mentors. And they all had it. And the way they get it, and this is the tricky part, is from just being around for a long time and seeing a lot. Right? So, as a new parent, you haven't had a baby before. You don't know what to trust because you haven't been through this before. And yet, you were once a baby. So, think about it this way back in ancient times, you know, I'm interested in all kinds of alternative medicine as well as my standard Western training as a doctor. And I often wonder how did the guys back thousands of years ago figure out what herb to take for something? You know, was it just one big experiment and they killed a lot of people while they were figuring it out?
1: I, I have think, I've literally wondered that same thing.
2: Yeah. And, you know, there's no evidence that that's what happened, that these shamans back in the ancient times did what my dog does. When my dog <laughs> is sick, she goes outside, she searches around for certain grass, chews it, throws up, feels better, comes in and wants to eat. Now, there's some wisdom in that that we've kind of lost touch with. It's this quality of knowing what resonates correctly with you. And and with babies, babies kind of need help with this, but there is something that they know. They know what tastes right. They know what feels right. They know, how you know, and we can learn from them. Babies are my greatest teachers. And parents need, you know, just listening. I'll give you a great example. Teaching parents how to hear the different cries of a newborn, at the very beginning, it's kind of a miraculous thing. But at the beginning, everybody's freaked out. I was freaked out. And I've been around babies when I first had one of my first kids. You know, the, the cry is just a cry, sort of a generic cry, right? And you don't know what. I call it the 21 questions. Is he sick? Is he hungry? Is he hot? Is he cold? Is he wet? Is, you know, what the hell is going on? It freaks everybody out. But within about a month or two, a parent suddenly kind of is already knowing the meaning of several different cries. Now, granted, the baby is also learning that certain cries elicit certain responses from the caregiver. So it's this little dance that takes place where you're becoming a bit of a connoisseur of your baby's cries. That's intuition. That's trusting what your your senses trusting what you're picking up on. Remember, as a doctor, I'm trained to actually hone my senses so that I can walk into a room and know this is an emergency. This is life threatening. This isn't right. Mm -hmm. And that takes training and practice. When I'm teaching medical students, they're completely freaked out. They're worse than new parents because they don't know anything and they think they know something. Which makes them worse than anything.
0: <laughs> I was gonna say that's the most dangerous person. <laughs> most
2: dangerous thing because they think they know something. So the first thing I do and the first thing I try to do as a as a practice, as literally as a as a spiritual practice for myself, is I sit with I don't know. Or better yet, from a developmental perspective, I don't know yet. I don't know yet. You know, I once made these buttons up. For, for a workshop I was doing and I gave them all these buttons that just said IDKY, I don't know yet. And I don't know yet makes you sort of open yourself up to the possibilities and you have to pay attention.
1: Yeah, I, I love that thought. I was just thinking, you know, I was watching, please, everybody out there, forgive me for this, but Grey's Anatomy, not too long ago. <laughs> okay, I admit it, but but there was, no a li- you know, there was a little bit of insight, a doctor was operating, you know, a new doctor was operating, and the patient said, are you as good as the other doctor? And he said, no, I'm not, but I will be. And it was actually a really cool – like I like that. It's kind of what you're saying. It's you know own that, realize your strengths and weaknesses, but understand that that's a process and you have to be willing to go through it. And not
2: just – that's correct, but not – even that has a a trace of arrogance. I I would say even more so living within the I don't know yet, but let's find out together Mm. what you and I are doing right now. I mean, you don't really know me. I don't really know you, but right. <laughs> we're open to the possibilities. We're not. We're trying not to be so guarded. I can hear it in your voices, mm-hmm. that you're kind of up and open people and inquisitive and curious, and that's fantastic. That's what makes what you are doing hopefully catch on because people will catch that spirit. And that's what a child has, the childlike spirit what the Zen Buddhists call beginner's mind is this open ended question, the willingness to be the question or what I call the spirit of inquiry, right? This spirit that says, what have we got here before you panic, before you try to label it, before you to put it in a box and say, okay, this is ADD. Okay. This is a uh, infection. Okay. This is before the emergency medicine model of label it, package it, and send it off to wherever it's supposed to go, there's a willingness to sit with it for a second and examine it and listen.
1: You know, it's funny because you don't hear too many board certified, 25 years experience, all that stuff. You don't hear too many doctors go this route, you know, like you mentioned. It's oftentimes prescribe and move on. And I think especially, you know, I I looked at your book on Amazon has great reviews and, you know, people just say you kind of listen to them. And I know I've gone to a number of different doctors. And when you sit down with the one who lets you talk for a few minutes, just lets you talk, you go, all right, this this is a guy I'm willing to work with
2: that 's right, yeah, and you know they uh, it 's estimated that a doctor spends six seconds in the room before he interrupts the patient and then is already moving on to the diagnosis it 's crazy and that 's time, and as I said in the eleven things blog, time is the most alternative thing i do
1: that 's actually most yeah.
2: alternative medicine
1: right that 's really funny, actually, so speaking of alternative medicine, I think for our listeners out there and everything. Could you kind of give us an idea of what your take is on, in your own practice and everything, Eastern medicine versus Western and how you combine the two?
2: Sure. Here's what attracted me to Eastern medicine. My frustration with uh, Western medicine came from the fact that I had this wonderful training in New York City in some of the great hospitals in New York, and I had really a heroic teaching where I, I became a hero. I was in the emergency room saving lives. I was in the ICU saving lives. I was making quick decisions. I was like a sergeant in the trenches. And it was heroic work. And very, you know, it fed my own ego of, you know, I'm great. This is (laughs) unbelievable. And look at me, you know. And it felt good. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong. I think Western medicine is stellar at emergencies. It's exported all around the world because it's so good at treating emergencies. And it's made Western medicine great. The problem came when I went out into the world as a developmental pediatrician and then a general pediatrician, and my interest, my special interest in child development was in how chronic illnesses or chronic conditions in children affected their development. That was my thing. And suddenly the emergency medicine model didn't work. It didn't work at all. It's really good for acute care. Fix it now. Stabilize, fix, get them out. Or what we call in the ERs, treat 'em and street 'em medicine.
1: <laughs> I'm sure you don't see that on the uh, marketing signs <laughs> to hospitals.
2: That's what it's called (laughs) among us. Right. 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 And I, for some bizarre reason, my heart was in this place. I don't know why my destiny was to be attracted to the more chronic problems that don't go away with a a simple treatment. Mm -hmm. Part of it was my own life story. We won't get into it now. But (laughs) interestingly, that created a dilemma. So uh, so I ended up being the medical director of what was called at the time the Asthmatic Children's Foundation, which essentially was this place where I took, it was part of St. Mary's Rehab Hospital for Children, and I basically took all these kids with chronic illnesses, chronic diabetes and, you know, obesity and asthma and prematurity problems, and they were living in emergency rooms in the city. These were primarily poor kids. And, they were, you know, parents were freaking out, and the kids were unstable, and it was terrible. And they were living from one emergency room to the other. And we took them to the country, and I lived with them. There was this beautiful place in the woods, and we all, you know, we had all these nice services. And I didn't, you know, I had been doing Tai Chi for myself and meditating and all these things, but I never thought of applying those to my patients. And one day I said, well, I've got all this time with them. Let me do some breathing exercises with the asthmatics, and let me feed the diabetics a little different way, because I had all this time. I had a nutritionist that I had hired, I had all this freedom to do this, right, and suddenly, miraculously, the asthmatics got better, but so much better that they were off all their medication. Now these are kids who were chronically on steroids and multiple medicines, bagfuls of medicines. And I got them off all their medication. And I thought, wait a minute. That's not supposed to happen. I wasn't taught that. And I went back to my colleagues at the big city hospitals at Columbia and at St. Luke's. And I said, "Uh, guys, something weird's going on. And they said, no, no, no. It's just coincidence. That's not." And I was a little ticked off, actually, (laughs) because no one taught me that. And it was at that moment that revelation that I said, I got to find out more about this because let me tell you something about human nature with doctors, especially when they don't know something patient goes in, you know, and says, well, I'm, I'm doing this, you know, echinaceous stuff to help me ward off colds. And the doctor doesn't know about that. The human nature side says, no, don't do it. Do you understand what I mean? When you don't know it's quicker to say no.
1: Sure, sure. Than to
2: say yes. Well, and, and... yes opens you up to the possibility, and then you're responsible for it. You don't want to be responsible for something you don't know about, so it's easier to say no, and that shuts the door on a dialogue.
1: Why is that? I mean, it's almost frustrating, right? There's there has to be a reason. If and I know there are cases where medicine's required. Nobody's going to refute that, obviously. Oh,
2: definitely, they save lives,
1: but in those instances and probably a lot of which you're saying there are alternatives and they are they're as effective or more than what we're doing. Where's the holdback? I mean what what is it the money? Because a lot of people will say it's the drug companies or well, you know, habit or society. I mean what what where's that disconnect?
2: One word. Ready? Fear. Fear of stepping out of the box, fear of being told by your doctor, no, don't do that, because we don't know ab- enough about it. Fear that you're gonna die, fear that you're gonna make a mistake, the doctor is afraid that he's gonna get sued. The drug company's pressuring because they're just selling a product. They're promoting the fear that if you don't take your lipitor, you're gonna have a heart attack. It's a complicated question with a simple answer. Fear blinds us all and we don't want to take a chance on experimenting nobody wants to experiment with their child and yet life is one big experiment now there's a way to be responsible for that I don't I'm not advocating that we be irresponsible with our kids I want everybody to be responsible especially your listeners out there But what I did in in that moment of revelation was I went back and I started educating myself. I admitted that I didn't know anything, and that's that I don't know yet. Let me find out more about this before I say yes or no. And it turns out, and this is sort of the crux of the work I do these days, one size doesn't fit all in medicine. And yet Western medicine is designed based on a factory model of assembly line mentality For expedience, for efficiency, to treat symptoms, don't look under the surface at the cause, just treat the symptom. That's the emergency medicine model. And that, you know, one size fits all. If you have a fever, take Tylenol. That's the model, right? And don't look under at the diversity of different reasons that different people have for having the same symptoms. And that gets messy and complicated. It means you have to spend more time getting to know your patient. Now, I want to spend time getting to know people because everybody has an interesting story. I'll bet both of you have really, really interesting stories. (laughs) But they're not the same story, and yet you both may have the same symptom. You both may have knee pain. But if you have different stories, and we don't take the time to listen to those stories, we're just going to say, look, we don't have the time. Both take Advil. Go home. I'm sure you'll be better in a few days. If you're not, we'll run some more
1: tests. Do you see my point? I do, and it's actually a perfect lead-in to the, the, the thing that I think a lot of people out there, a lot of people listening will really connect with, and it's it's your book, Fire Child, Water Child, and the idea—I'm I'm putting words in your mouth at this point, so I won't—but of just the different— ways that, you know, we try to assign ADD or ADHD when that's not the case. Could you kind of tell us more about that?
2: Well, I think you said it nicely and succinctly. Thank you.
1: <laughs> I try. You can
2: be my publicist now. <laughs> no problem. But more than that, it's that we don't grow the same way. That the way I say it to kids, and they're the ones who listen the best to me these days, <laughs> we each have a secret power. And the trick is figuring out kids get really excited when you say that. And rather than start by saying what's wrong with you, you start by saying what's right with you. Okay? And that means looking carefully at what is your skill set, what is your talent, what is your characteristics that make you unique, that you're good at, that you turn you on, that excite you, that what it turns out is, in my mind now, attention deficit is sort of a mystique. It's a, ADHD and ADD are symptoms like fever. Forget that for a second and come back to the reality that most kids who are not paying attention in a particular setting, when you ask parents, they're paying attention, but not to what we want them to be paying attention to. There's nothing broken in their attention centers of the brain. It's just that they're not paying attention to what we want them to the way we want them to. And so we're wired to pay attention. Everything is is about paying attention. The whole body is paying attention. It's just that if you're in an emergency state, you're paying attention to get me out of here. If you're in a calm, secure state, you're saying, wow, this is very interesting. So there are different qualities. And then to make it more interesting and what my book, Fire Child, Water Child is about, is defining these different styles of paying attention different secret powers that i use an old chinese medicine model called the five phase model fire child the earth child the wood child the metal child and the water child that each have these characteristics like superheroes they each have characteristics that are great when they're worked on when they're developed but when a kid is insecure it doesn't come out well I'll give you an example. The fire child is sort of the happy-go-lucky entertainer, the naturally silly, charismatic charmer, who you know just loves to have a good time. And he, you know, he'll walk into a room and he'll be the life of the party. But there are certain settings when it's time to be serious, Johnny. When suddenly that makes him a little nervous. And when you're nervous and insecure, you're bound to puff yourself out a little bit and so you get an exaggerated version of the fire child which is now the class clown or the hyper impulsive kid who's falling out of his chair just to lighten things up for the class because everybody's getting too serious about this math that's a particular style The wood child has a different style. The earth child has a different style. And the insecure version is often what we label as ADD. But where it gets complicated, ADD is just the symptom, like fever. But where it gets complicated is if you treat all fever, for example, with Tylenol, you're going to kill somebody if you haven't looked at the reason why, right? Because one may have a cold and another may have meningitis, they both may have a 102. Nobody's denying that. But you've got to take the time to make the difference between a cold and meningitis. The same is true with ADD. One may be paying attention for one, re- having trouble paying attention for one reason, and another child may have another reason. If you treat them all with Ritalin, you're going to kill somebody. And I've seen that. Yeah. And once I saw that, I can never go down that route again.
0: I'm not going to lie. I actually got really excited when you said that the kids get excited when they hear that they have special powers. As soon as you said that, I lit up because I was like, oh, man, I, even as a 30 year old now, love to hear that. Luckily, Chris and I are old enough to kind of be outside the, I guess, Ritalin. John, you don't have special powers. Well, (laughs) yes, he does. I I like to think I do, but like, if you do. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine being a kid and being diagnosed with. ADD, because I had interests outside of whether it be normal school or or those things. Are you seeing people starting to recognize the stuff that you're saying here where these kids, they are all different and we need to look at them differently and treat them differently and kind of develop them differently?
2: Absolutely. It's resonating. Or, you know, my book, believe it or not, it's so weird. It's been translated now into German Korean, and Chinese. And Chinese I find the most interesting because here there's this Chinese philosophy that underlies the whole principles that I've made user-friendly for an American audience, right? Mm -hmm. But I learned it over years of studying Chinese medicine and applying those principles, right? And now it's coming full circle going back (laughs) to China where the industrialization of China is actually bringing more adhd problems to china so they're now embracing it as if it's exported from america and yet it was originally theirs isn't that wild so so yes to an- the short answer to your question is wherever i go around the country teaching this stuff parents and professionals alike really pick up on it but And and they like it because it's a way of customizing care for children and embracing the gifts of children, the thing that turns you on about the secret powers. But what really gets them is the way the kids take to it. Because now they're owning something positive rather than a kid saying, I'm bipolar or I'm ADHD, which makes them, you know, it's such a sad thing when I hear a kid labeling himself, identifying himself with a, a disease, we want kids empowered, not debilitated.
0: Sure, and he's got to hide his medicine at school and that type of thing. I mean, it can be it's, an embarrassing—it's shame, you
2: know—an embarrassment, and also it makes him sound like he's broken. And no kid is broken. I, so this empowerment um, catches on. I did this workshop not long ago. Uh, that's going to be the next book I'm working on. You know, it's, it's something I'm working on now and there's several interesting groups that I'm not yet at liberty to talk about that may pick up on this with me about how to make a kid a hero. That's Let no me truth. ask you guys this. What's a true hero?
1: That's a tough question. I know. I was going to say Because <laughs> uh, you don't want to give any cliche answer. You don't want to screw that question up. I, I tr- I'll say it. Say what's in your heart. I, I truly believe a hero is somebody that puts others' needs, wants, desires, at least if not ahead of their own, on par with it.
0: Yeah, I was going to say somebody that does something for somebody selflessly, even though doing something selfless is very hard to do.
2: No, no. That is both of you exactly right. That's the point, okay? And it turns out in all my studies, and there's several research uh, articles that have supported this, that the more you do for others like that, like a hero, like a true hero as you defined it, the more secure you feel. Do you know why? No. Well, the obvious reasons are you're getting positive feedback for it. That makes you feel more secure, right? Mm -hmm. People think you're cool. (laughs) Um, So you feel empowered in a certain way. That's the obvious reasons. There are other reasons. You feel like you have a purpose, and that makes you feel secure. You feel in some ways like your problems aren't so big compared to other people's, as you do for more other people. So that makes you feel more secure. And in some ways, there's this way of giving that allows you to feel more connected to a larger group. Something you're doing right now as two heroes through the blog that you're doing, through this podcast. Mm -hmm. That connection, that's heroic what you're doing. You're doing this to spread the word, so to speak, but you're connecting with people. And I consider that heroic work. And so – and it feels good, doesn't it? It I mean we love it. And you love it when you get feedback. Absolutely. That's heroic work and it makes you feel like you have a purpose and there is a certain quality of security built into that. Okay. Now the opposite is that the more selfish you are and self-involved you are, the more insecure you actually become for all the opposite reasons. You're getting your problems seem bigger than everybody else's. You don't have a purpose other than that satisfaction momentarily. You're disconnected from the group. All these negative reasons that make you actually feel more insecure, which then makes you more selfish. So the negative cycle, what I call the cycle of suffering, is something I'm interested in breaking. And it turns out when you work with kids with their secret powers, stuff I talk about in my book, you can develop As they learn to master these gifts, like attention, which is one of our gifts, master it for the good of others, you become a true hero, and you feel really good and empowered about yourself.
1: I couldn't agree with you more. I honestly have been building this idea for a long time about how each person's individual attributes and strengths are purposeful, and until you utilize them properly you you will feel like there's something missing I, I don't know it's just something i've i've learned over a long time and i truly believe and i think it's identical to what you're saying
2: identical it's exactly the right and you're not alone there i think you said it beautifully but all the great adventure stories we loved lord of the rings and you know all this great stuff right It's getting a little warped by some of the superhero stuff right now, Hmm. which is this vision of when I talk to kids about this, very intimately, I get into these discussions with hundreds and hundreds of kids. There's some kids who'll say, the hero is killing the bad guy, but that's not what the hero is. You guys both got it. It's how to put yourself aside and do something for somebody else. Spontaneously, it arises. And you're right. It's when your skill sets suddenly come alive and you have something to contribute. You know, suddenly you say, oh, wait, I know how to do that. And everybody goes, you do? Great. Get over here. (laughs) And that's what humans for millions of years learned to use. That's why our diversity, it's why nature favors diversity. And in problem solving, we know this. Here's the example, right? Right. And there's, this has been repeated over and over again. You take a genius and put him in a room with a problem, and you take you know ten average intelligence people from diverse walks of life, put them in another room with the same problem. They will always come up with a more creative solution than him, because they're coming at it from so many different avenues that they're bound to uncover much more creative, unpredicted solutions. The one guy who's the expert, he's already preset. He's going to do it the way he knows how to do it, and it limits his option. This is why Google and places like that now are having you know, Friday afternoons work on whatever project you want, to tap into creativity. Because as you said, everybody's got some hidden gift, some talent that needs, and, and the right opportunities will bring it out. So in education, what I'm interested in when it comes to attention is creating contexts that are going to... Bring out those creative talents and then you say, ah, let's run with that. Let's see how we can utilize that for this kid to learn math or for this kid to learn to read or this kid to write or this kid to tell a story. Whatever is shifting the context rather than forcing the, the, the square peg into a round hole. Mm-hmm. You know, we never look at the context. It's never the school's problem. It's always the kid's problem.
0: Welcome back. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Dr. Cowan. And I'm saying I hope you enjoyed it because next week you're getting part two.
1: Yeah, I didn't know how I felt about that. But John talked me into allowing us to do two parts for two episodes in a row. And to be honest, the reason I agreed is because, man, it was awesome talking to him.
0: Yeah, it was a fantastic conversation. And he know. was such a cool guy. like And enlightening. Very enlightening. Just the conversation with him. I mean, we were enthralled the entire time just sitting here when he had us doing the close your eyes thing and all that cool stuff. I mean, I don't know where that appears in the interview, but spoiler alert, I guess.
1: (laughs) So thanks for listening, guys. If you can, head over to iTunes, leave a rating. Those have slowed down a little bit. And, you know, we understand you got some things to do. But if you can do that, we appreciate it. And as always, check out the Amazon banner at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Sign up for the newsletter. Holler at us. We love hearing from you. And I'll make sure Chris never says holler anymore.
0: Yes. See you guys next week.